uh, a lot of organizations, and irrespective of the scale, it might be a startup or enterprise, uh, they are trying to resolve some of the human process uh, challenges just by basically purchasing and adopting technology. And then there is another uh, thing when, when, they, when they do it, this technology may uh, lie on the shelf for, for, for 12 months and not actually being used for its purpose. Listening to KBcast, the cybersecurity podcast for all executives. Cutting through the jargon and hype to understand the landscape where risk and technology meet. Now, here's your host, Carissa Breen. Eugene, welcome to the show. I'm excited to have you on the show today because, I mean, I've known you just recently, like maybe six or so months, maybe it's longer, it's hard to tell in COVID times now, but when I met you, you had a very interesting view on the industry, and I think we shared similar views. So I'm really keen to explore that, hear your thoughts, hear your insights. But before we sort of dive on into that, we always like to start our podcast off with talking about you and your journey. So please talk our listeners through where you started to where you are now. Hi, Carissa. Thanks for having, having me on that podcast. Uh, it's, it's a pleasure. And indeed, we, we've, we know each other for, for several months, but uh, timing is, is very relative things these days. So yeah, I'm uh, I'm a business development partner at Fastlane Solutions. I also run my own uh, strategic advisory uh, boutique shop called Infinite. Uh, so it all started for me, uh, to be honest, in Eastern Germany. I, I was a uh, kid of uh, Ukrainian Soviet parents, and I was born there. Then I, uh, when the, you know the whole thing collapsed, or we moved back to Ukraine, I, I started. Uh, studying international law, did the legal career for 10 years with Baker McKenzie's uh, and other foreign law firms, uh, US law firms present in Ukraine. And then from there, at some point of time, when I was already at this stage of career, when you manage more of the people and processes and customer expectations, uh, I understood that the world is really moving into this technology space and it will enable uh, almost every industry, except for probably uh, family law, which is hard to manage just by AI or anything else. Uh, and yeah, I made a conscious decision to try myself in different industry and actually to try myself and my life in, in different uh, place of the world. So uh, it just turned out to be that Australia was that place. And uh, I moved to Melbourne in 2017 did a little bit of um, upgrade in terms of my uh, business degrees on top of what I knew uh, back then that I was doing in, in the EU and Ukraine itself. And from there, I joined uh, Fastlane Solutions uh, and we started doing a lot of interesting things in technology. So that's in a nutshell, the quick snapshot of uh, how I ended up here and uh, involved in the industry at the moment. Interesting background. I love it. And I love that you you did move to Australia. I mean, I have never moved countries in my life yet. So that is obviously a big, uh, big jump, especially because, you know, you're obviously uh, English isn't your first language. So I'm really keen because of what's happening in recent times. Now, you're obviously Ukrainian, you've got that background, your parents are from there. Maybe you can just touch on sort of a little bit more of your thoughts uh, around what's sort of happening in the world today uh, and how do you sort of see what's happening in the world today really shifting from a technology and security perspective? How are we going to sort of traverse into this new way of operating? Yeah, thanks. Great question. Pre- pretty broad though, but uh, in terms of the Ukrainian uh, Ukrainian conflict itself, uh, to be honest, uh, the, the historically it has been a frozen problem since the moment when I when I was you know touching upon my my point of life where I was born because Soviet Union collapsed and 
the relationship between um, kind of former Soviet republics and Ukraine was uh, second in terms of influence economically and uh, technology industry-wise. Uh, those relationships were still frozen, and it's been 30, almost 32 years since then. Uh, and none of the former kind of Soviet republics could have had the power to actually take uh, responsibility of, over, over what's happening in the region. Russia tried to, but as far as we see, uh, methods used are not always uh, those which are acceptable. Uh, and, and Ukraine was the, probably the only one republic which was leaning more towards West. And uh, there was a lot of collaboration in economically and in terms of uh, fighting corruption and, 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 and you know, uh, multinational fraud and in technology, because we have uh, Ukrainians have a lot of talent in a very niche and high, high end uh, aspects of technology like blockchain, cybersecurity. Uh, there are a lot of famous uh, kind of uh, white hat hackers coming from from uh, Ukrainian background. I know uh, heaps of those people based in Australia as well and in the US. And within the recent uh, uh, kind of uh, frame of the conflict, I already uh, some people reached out to me from from Melbourne and Sydney and from the US uh, trying to help in, in the cybersecurity space. And I just uh, kind of forwarded them to, to the right direction. I have some friends there who are working with government and helping in, in all this uh, cybersecurity space and, and national security and technology area of it. So in terms of uh, how do we move from here, I think that the world has become, the world has lost uh, all the gains after the Second World War in terms of globalization of the economy, freedom of movement of capital, information, people, workforce. And it actually started not because, obviously because of the uh, war in Ukraine. Uh, it, it actually started uh, from my perspective uh, during COVID because the world just started to fragment into some alliances and local groups of interest between, between countries or corporations, which creates, uh, you know, when you're kind of in this isolated, segregated mode, uh, you build more walls uh, and you build more uh, offensive and defensive things around it. And it definitely will influence the whole, the entire uh, cybersecurity and, and, and technology space. So I'm, I'm actually expecting a larger proliferation of uh, defensive and offensive cybersecurity uh, aspects, uh, obviously in the private and public sector. Yeah, it's interesting because I've spoken to a few people recently, like the last week, and they said that they've got uh, Ukrainian developers and they've had to sort of, you know, put a lot of their product development on hold. And so there's definitely a big shift. And I know that they've got a very highly skilled security capability there. I've worked with people uh, in security before who were from the Ukraine. So in terms of your understanding living there, as well as, you know, what, what is happening and from your experience now living in Australia, if you, if you sort of fast forward five years, do you think that we'll still sort of be not in the same predicament, but do you think that the, the playing field will equal out or and level out, or do you think that perhaps you may even start to go backwards? Just to clarify, you're, you're, uh, you mean the, the entire global landscape or in terms of what's happening there? I think the entire global landscape, just of course, because you've, you've got a different lens than perhaps someone like myself who's only ever lived in Australia. So I'm really keen because you have lived in uh, multiple parts of the world. Maybe you have a very different and, and unique uh, view of if we're going to move forward, if we're going to move backwards or, or, or what. Honestly, and I've recently attended one of the investment conferences in Sydney and the, the tendencies 
where, where people invest money now, there's a, there's a huge uplift of trend of so-called ESG investments, economical, social, and governments, uh, governance and ethical investments where uh, fun, you know, funding and investors are trying to get, you know, get rid of fueling uh, aggressive or destructive uh, business models which will fuel any kind of conflicts or, or uh, you know, negative things in the world. Uh, so, yeah, in, in relation to your question, I would probably say we are we're, we started moving backwards in the last three years, and the the war in Europe actually confirms that you know it hasn't been happening at this scale since the Second World War. So it, it does tell that humanity, while having advanced you know significantly in technology and other areas and science, was still the ways we operate and the ways we make decisions in business and in governance and politics. They are they're pulling us back backwards, and and technology will follow. So it will either become more fierce and aggressive in terms of what it's gonna do, or uh, we, we will we will need to rethink the ways we, we operate. So yeah, my, like my my quick answer is we're going backwards at the moment, and I would also expect in the next year or two a financial reboot. Some people who are more uh, kind of oriented to look at things pessimistically they would call it a financial crisis but i would expect a financial reboot uh proliferation of digital currencies and and, and crypto and uh new ways of governing financial systems uh, on a national scale and hopefully those national scales will start talking to each other pretty soon again because we really need to get back to this uh united even if it's polarity, but it's still united. Yeah, it's a big topic. And I wanted to sort of just gauge your hypothesis on that, because again, there's a lot of people talking about what they think may happen in sort of, you know, not just in the next 12 months, but the next five to 10 years. So I'm always curious to hear people's opinions on that. But one thing I'd like to focus on, which you mentioned, like business models. Now, when you and I spoke originally, you sort of talked, you talked about that, but you also sort of talked around human process versus tech capability. So can you sort of elaborate a little bit more about what you mean when you say this? Yeah, so uh, essentially wh- during my career, whether in legal consultants, consulting uh, business or, or technology consulting, uh, you know, the main takeaway for me right now is uh, whatever the tools we use, whether in legal, it's, it's sort of laws and processes, uh, you know, and procedures, or in, in technology, those are like technology tools. We're, also, uh, we're all, always tend, as, as humans, we always tend to, uh, go into uh, one or another extreme. One of the extremes is when the organization is not capable of adopting technology uh, changes and, and being sort of up, uh, you know, uh, up with time uh, and, uh, and upgrades that are required. The, the other extreme is when the organization is not mature in terms of how uh, it manages its, its human, human capital and how it manages its processes and relationship within this human capital. But, but this organization would uh, heavily rely on technology as as a gateway to some sort of uh, relief and and you know resolving of its problems and challenges, which is another extreme. And uh, especially during COVID and and, and probably it started uh, uh, before that, and because of the huge push by you know uh, kind of technology vendors to to adopt uh, this or that solution, uh, a lot of organizations, and irrespectively of the scale, it might be a startup or enterprise. Uh, they are trying to resolve some of the human process uh, challenges just by basically purchasing and adopting technology. And then there is another uh, thing when, when, they, when they do it, this technology may uh, 
lie on the shelf for, for, for 12 months and not actually being used for its purpose. So I'm really a big uh, kind of uh, supporter of uh, having the holistic approach and looking at uh, all things non-technology before going into that space. Uh, in whatever decision you make as a manager or, or, or a leader, uh at at each and every level and th- and then the next the next thing is when you do any technology adoption decision uh, it's always the value chain is always always starting with human and ending up with human and whatever happens in between should serve that purpose uh and i think we went too far with uh you know kind of overwhelming avalanche adoption of technology without thinking about the initial purpose of it we invented everything just to serve uh, a better, I don't know, business or personal life for humans, and I think we kind of start. We're starting to forget about the you know, why did we start it in the first place. In terms of sectors, would you say that there are particular areas that are really, like you said, if it's more focus on the technology or more focus on the human side, is there areas that you've come across that are more focused on one or the other like is that you can you clearly see that there isn't that equilibrium but then if so which are those sectors that are sort of leaning towards towards more human or more tech well if you if you mean uh, sectors of the economy or kind of segments of market uh, i would i would definitely say from our experience and this is what we've been doing with fastlane uh, solutions as well uh, for, for some of our clients historically it's financial industry and uh, all, all industries which are heavily regulated in terms of compliance, and obviously financial industry is there. Uh, so uh, they, they, they by, by design of their uh, sort of uh, task in the market, they need to adopt a lot of uh, technology solutions for, 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 for the purpose of uh, you know, being compliant with regulation, being uh, responsible uh, with their customers. Uh, but uh, the, the downfall and the gap that I'm seeing there, the adoption of all of these solutions, whether in-house or for customers, uh, sometimes um, gets sort of uh, uh, dis- you know, distracted or dismantled by the, by the org design, org dynamics of the, say, bank or financial institution itself. People who are working within or vendors who are working with that company, they are not aligned and and it uh, turns out uh, into huge delays uh, low quality technology adoption customer dissatisfaction and and you know uh, and and high costs and and legacy uh, heavy legacy of technology and misalignment between the the new stuff and and the previous stuff so uh, probably maybe I have a professional bias but I would definitely uh, tell you know that this is financial industry and the mere the example that there are uh, new players coming into the, that market whether it's in payments or in banking and who are trying to solve that uh that you know assumed challenge uh they're, they're trying to be more agile they're trying to be more human-centric about how they build teams and deliver products their customers and, and they're trying to be more reflective about what's happening in the market and uh take mistakes and and uh, uh kind of downfalls of the big players into account and, and become a better uh better servicing uh business in that way so yeah in the short short answer is that probably the regulated industry in particular in focus financial industry from my perspective so one of the things that i'm curious to explore now is you just mentioned like financial services of course they do have a big push and they're leveraging a lot of the technology capability 
But from your understanding, your experience of observing this sort of behavior, what do you think that these companies potentially in financial services are sort of missing on the human element side? Is there anything that sort of comes to mind? Yeah, I think they're very much in in uh, in the game of uh, delivering quicker products to their customers, being compliant, being very uh, tough in in terms of the all these frameworks uh, and requirements. But what they're doing, they they forget about the internal culture, internal internal org design and dynamics, and and, and the institutional knowledge and people they have internally. Um, it's actually at the core of being of being successful for their customers and being compliant and responsible uh, for the industry itself. So I think they really need to start looking more inwards uh, and, and making sure people who, who have been there for a while, who are better, you know, bearers of that institutional knowledge and who are involved in delivery of uh, of whatever services or products, they're uh, kind of uh, you know they're kind of respected and they have the, the right architecture of the organization and the right processes and dynamics to uh, to serve to the market because uh, uh, you know in simple language if if uh, half of the say big bank uh, big banks sort of uh, tribe or or department leaves in a very important area uh, whatever compliance level you have whatever upgraded technology is in place. You're not gonna deliver to anyone, and and you're gonna lose a lot of time and cost and effort to uh, get uh, the right people in place again and get them up to speed and and actually regain that institutional knowledge that you have lost with with you know turnover turnover of your employees or even vendors who are serving uh, as a service partners. Uh, so I think uh, they really need to start looking more in inwards to. To be successful uh, for 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 themselves and and and, and around, and as I've mentioned, some of the players who are entering the market in, uh, you know, doing new ways of working, doing new ways of delivery of products, and being more uh, agile and customer centric in payments or in banking, they they are getting more traction and they are actually cutting off the market share from the from this those slow old-fashioned players yeah and it makes total sense, right? Like I really do get it. I mean, technology can do a lot of the heavy lifting, then opposed to humans as well as it removing human error so i get the reasoning but would you say because for example fin services are very focused on the technology that they sort of miss the point of where they're going with what they're doing maybe the vision sort of shifts and all of a sudden it's just very focused on the technology at the core is there a bit of that that's going on because again like it's it, it could easily steer you away quite easily right and you you go down a rabbit hole on just focusing on the tech rather than like well why are we doing this tech in the first place yeah absolutely uh, th- that's a gr- great summary of that because uh uh in, in essence as i've started this podcast uh, you know with this statement that uh the whole technology thing was invented by humans to serve humans uh, and to make other humans you know to, and to help to help all of the humans, right? So if you look at the financial services, uh, some of those uh, organizations I'm talking about, they they really um, decided to focus just on how, uh, and and they forgot about why and what they're actually doing. Sometimes it's not about the speed of how you deliver products to the market. Unfortunately, they're being pushed by the shareholder interests or or the industry standards, but sometimes it's actually why are you doing that? Maybe it's better to deliver one product rather than three, but 
align your team with it, align your strategy with it, and your customers, customers' lifetime value will be just larger from that point because you'll take care of, uh, you know, of everyone in the chain, in the value chain. So, yeah, it's, you know, technology is is a tool. And if you're focusing on the tool and you're not looking at uh, what actually you're you're building, then then you'll end up in, you know, in a situation where where you're just worshipping that tool and not actually constructing or architecting new product solution. Or, I don't know, I can use the analogy of the tradie if I'm just, uh, you know, worshipping my hammer, uh, but I I forget that I'm actually working for, for my customers then I'll just remain alone with that hammer at home and happy about it. But I'll end up nowhere. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, you're so true. Okay, so I'm really curious about this then. So how do we check ourselves that we're not worshipping the tool? So is there any sort of signs, indicators that we're like, ooh, actually, we're sort of getting really absorbed by this. And then by that point, you're so far in it, that's all that you see then. So what sort of advice can you give to people that are perhaps listening going, is this me? Well, I, I, I'm not going to, you know, uh, open Americas here. It's just asking yourself the question, why all the time? And then if you have a group of people or a large organization and, you know, uh, diverse teams with different skills and backgrounds, you just keep communicating about it, like technology guys, then strategy guys, financial guys, legal. You, you, you convene all of them together in one room and you just ask that question with with a certain level of frequency uh, and certain level of uh, you know re- re- kind of repetition and make sure you don't deviate from that why uh, in business and strategy and delivery and delivery is all about sort of how you deliver this is where technology is applied so and it's a, it's a very good exercise for for our own lives but definitely you know organization and its customers these are like no, like nodes in blockchain, these are all interconnected people in the chain. And if they keep uh, speaking the same language of why are we doing that? And then we understand what are we doing? And then we, we, we deliver on how, like, uh, like you apply this or that technology or this or that business framework or financial, financial framework, whatever is that. So just, just that, you know, why do, did we start this project or uh, uh, program in the first place? Why are we delivering this product for our customers? Uh, maybe their you know perceptions have shifted, but we're already d- deep diving into which which kind of uh, cloud solution we're gonna apply to that. And nobody cares. I mean, you know, for for, for banks, nobody cares whether they they're in this or that cloud. Most of the customers they 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 take care about uh, the value of the service. So any organization came there to to deliver the value to the market. And uh, behind that, there is a why, right? And th- that's it. That's that's uh, pretty much uh, the whole magic. It's 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 basically being consistent with asking that this question why uh, to yourself. And then, of course, uh, there is a lot of literature and science there. Or uh, you know, why is kind of a purpose. But then there is a very important part of the execution. And then there is a lot of uh, quantifiable and verifiable factors which uh, impact execution and. Uh, to be honest, a lot of uh, players in, in the financial industry, for instance, uh, that I'm referring to, they're pretty good in execution. But when the why and the purpose was wrong, uh, you just execute on something that is not required there and that may harm first your team, secondly, your reputation and your customers and, and overall your business position in the market. Okay, so there's a couple of things that came up in my mind as you were speaking. So 
First and foremost, are people asking why enough? But before you answer that, I'd also like to explore working in a large corporation myself when you're like, you know, 50 levels down from the CEO, you start to lose focus on that vision. Or if you're even six levels below the CISO or, you know, what, whatever it is, whatever arbitrary number, the, the levels, you do start to lose that vision of the why. And so in my experience, I've asked why, and the manager's gone, we just don't ask why, we just do the thing. So how do you sort of foster the right culture? Because I'm a, I'm a questioner. I ask why we're doing something. I won't do something unless it actually makes sense. I'm not going to just do it because so-and-so told me to do it, which is probably why I'm not working for someone else and I'm, and I'm working for myself. So I'm curious to know how do we get around that? Because that's a big reason why I chose to leave a lot of organizations because they didn't have this vision. You start questioning, no one likes it. Like It's kind of like poking the bear a little bit. So how do we poke the bear without getting people offside? Well, yeah, really, really adore the question, Carissa. First of all, I think that the, you know, the, the fact that you are not involved with this type of organizations and this was your conscious decision back in the time, this takes courage to do that. Some people, they are not, uh, you know, um, a lot of people, like if you have the room of, of 100 people and, and at least 60, 70% of them are not, courageous enough just to make this step like you've done or, or some other people, uh, uh, it, this culture will remain in place. But what happened during the COVID, you probably heard about the so-called hype term, global resignation or you know huge turnover of employees, uh, uh, mainly in the US, but it will impact everyone. Uh, and and you know, when people uh, actually understood during COVID that uh, some of their fears and, anxi- and anxieties are, are not that scary, uh, and they can make this step and actually question why I'm doing this job for the last 15 years and I was never explained what exactly I was trying to achieve, whether it's the scale of 20 people in the organization or or, or 10,000. Uh, and, and some of the people, they understood uh, there is no why here. I can't deliver on the blind uh, targets and blind strategy and I, I can't sit in this blind zone anymore. So uh, I think uh, to your first kind of part of the question, whether... Uh, everyone's asking this question, why enough? I think in the last two years, it has actually ramped up into uh, unprecedented rates and people are starting to ask why. Uh, and the, the outcome is that if, if I don't have this meaning and purpose in the organization, it's just about salary and deli- delivering something that we don't know why we're delivering. A lot of people just resign to nowhere and they're getting new jobs because those players that I was referring in the first point who are more advanced in terms of ways of working, in terms of being organization-centric, customer-centric, they're getting those uh, smart people on board and and they are uh, transparent enough to answer this question every day. Why are we doing that? So I think people actually started to ask that uh, question um, more frequently, which is a great trend. And uh, on the other hand, of course, there are still managers who would who would answer you that we don't ask that question in our, uh, you know, a kind of uh, dictatorship-like organization. You just do what you're told to do. Um, it's 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 your own decision whether you accept that uh, your way or not. But I think from my perspective, in the next, I'm going to be pretty broad here in terms of horizon, but and not not to sound dramatic, but in the next 10 to 15 years, this type of managers they have no future. They just have no future because uh, we're all uh, what technology did to us. We're so connected that we can 
literally run uh, execution of a lot, you know, of huge amount of decisions per day, which means if there is a trend along the workforce and, and, and employees and entrepreneurs that we're not going to accept that answer, it means that the uh, exponential impact of, of saying no to this type of leadership will, will, will kind of uh, move fast and maybe it's not even 10, 15 years, maybe five to seven uh, you know, coming to the first point of uh, the reboot of the entire global economy and, and ways of working. Um, so, yeah, uh, I think COVID actually made a great, you know, made some positive impact in that for uh, for all of us to become better uh, leaders and employees or partners or, or, or you know, uh, vendors or whatever. I think we're, we're actually doing pretty good. It's just sometimes painful uh, and there are a lot of biases involved. Yeah, you're so true. And to be honest, as you're speaking, I'm thinking, I think, yeah, I've definitely asked. I don't even think they knew why themselves, right? And they probably didn't want to expose that. So they're probably like, oh, I don't know, we'll just do what we're told. Uh, and I think it's maybe a lack of them caring. They're probably just there to get the salary, go home and do that. And that's fine. That's perfectly fine. But I think, again, it comes back to I can't do something if I don't know why. And depends on the size of the organization. You are a very small heart drop in a large pond. So for me, I couldn't see the direct impact of what I was doing, even though the role was important. Sometimes it's hard to see that when you, you are so far down the chain or you're doing something that is adding to an overall sort of cog in the wheel, so to speak. So I can understand that people just maybe they don't ask. And so when you, when you ask them, that sort of gets them on the back foot of the defense a little bit. So I'd like to sort of switch gears now and maybe explain your thoughts on how companies need to change the way their business model operates. Now, we've sort of touched on this uh, throughout the interview, but I'm really curious to know what this means and what this means for people who are listening. Yeah, well, uh, thanks for this one. Uh, I think that it means we're, we really need to find new um, models of uh, diagnosis of the organizational health or uh, dynamics or, or architecture, whatever you call it, uh, and the drivers and motivation behind people who are involved in their, in their organization. And from this level, understand whether it's aligned, whether it's why, with its purpose, where it's going. Okay, for instance, I don't know, companies like Nintendo, they, they Nintendo exists from the end of uh, 19th century. And the purpose of this organization was to entertain people. And they started with playing cards in, back in Japan, uh, back in the time. And, and now, uh, now they, they are doing all of this, you know, fancy hardware devices and, and software on them uh, while they are still committed to entertaining people they don't try to compete on computational power or performance of their devices with uh, with the competitors but what they're trying to do they're trying to engage people in, in a different ways like this thing where, when you can play tennis with with a stick and and and, and this and on the screen somebody will move so all this interactivity is one of the examples where uh, the company does exist for almost like uh, you know 150 years. Uh, the, the the tools and ways how you deliver that have changed and advanced, but you're still true to your why and your purpose. But uh, it, and then you have the story of the founder, right? So the company was founded for a reason, for for, for the reason why it will do something in the market. Uh, it's important to make sure whether it's C-suite or the founder or you know the, the you know main people in leadership in the company that uh, this why is sort of uh, constantly streaming to the to the entire organization. And then when we're living in this dynamic environment, how do you 
make sure it's happening. You need to measure it, right? So there is actually a lot of tools already in the market which are measuring uh, engagement, involvement, and motivation of your personnel, of your, of your human capital. And then that you can find some insights into whether people are in the right uh, quadrant of, of uh, giving their profile, whether they're in the right quadrant of the organization, say, guy who is very, someone who is very driven by data and, and quantifiable, quantifiable things uh, probably would not be the best fit for, for sales or business development because you really need to experiment and make some illogical, irrational uh, you know, things there just to sort of understand your customer or your, the person you're talking to or vice versa. If you put someone like me, for instance, in, uh, in I don't know, in, in purely data analytics or computational thing, uh, I would not probably succeed there. But then there is another layer uh, if if the person even is in the, is in the right sort of spot or right domain of the organization, there might be some personal or business reasons why this person has lost the motivation after four, four or five years of working there. Maybe it's disconnect uh, with why or it hasn't been communicated. Maybe it's personal reason. Maybe the strategy of the company has has taken the turn that was unexpected and uh, sort of hit the bias or or resistance of that person. If you identify it uh, before uh, before the final decision on, on breaking up with the company is made, you can actually steer that uh, in, into the right direction and actually uh, boost the engagement. Uh, and there are tools out there in the market which can help you to measure that. But in order to solve that, it's just human interaction. It's just actually sitting down in that boardroom and discussing uh, uh, f f everything from basics uh, up to the strategy, and as we know, like it's a biblical, uh, you know, biblical topic by McKinsey. Uh, strategy is not about how we get to the successful point; it's about understanding the hurdles and barriers on the way there, and understanding how you're going to deal with them. So, in, in that case, if you deal with people while having some metrics and some some measured um, kind of uh, verified data on that. Data is just an input. It will never help you to solve the challenge or problem, but it, it will give you the picture and then you, 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 you decide where you go from there. This is why all of these hybrid strategist professions are, are one of those which will be in huge demand in the future. For instance, if you take my previous career in legal, uh, the most people, you know, people who will be in the most demand uh, are, are not those who have learned the civil code from A to B, those who understand the whole holistic picture and how to deal with it in terms of people and processes and, and interactions in, in the ecosystem. So uh, pretty much measure and uh, face and deal with your people and be honest with your why. Uh, and this is how you go from it. There is another part about that some of the founders or, or leadership teams, they are not honest with themselves about why and they would answer your question why uh, we just want to gain more ROI, or we need to make a money-making machine. But that's that's a different topic. We we can elaborate into that if you want as well. Okay, so just to press on new business models, would you say it sort of lends itself to COVID? And what I mean by that is people had to, or they were forced to change their operating models. Like I even remember working historically, and it was like no one's allowed to work from home. Or it's like now you'd be really hard pressed to find someone that is not in a position where they're going to work from home. Like no one's going to do that. And yes, there's going to be this hybrid model, but I think it, I'm just curious to know it's, 
we've sort of forced people's hands. And so because of that, would you say it's going to accelerate people's change to their business model moving forward because they've already sort of adopted this new age approach perhaps? Like, am, am I on the right track here in that thinking or correct me if I'm not? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you can't be on the wrong track in, in this type of discussions because uh, honestly, we're all in this process at the moment. We may have a point of view and, and sort of um, uh, kind of philosophy around where we're going. But definitely the fact is already there that a hybrid approach to ways of working is not going anywhere, especially, uh, you know, in, in technology-based companies. And I don't know, like any company which is uh, trying to be future-proof now has this plus tech, whatever, biotech, you know, insure tech, fintech. Uh, so with these ways of working, uh, the, the fundamental element is, is trust. Because if you have a remote team or someone working remotely, like myself, for instance, my company I'm, I'm working for at the moment is based out of Sydney. And I was the first person to start working out of Melbourne. And, and then the last one and a half years proved that uh, building that trust and constant communication uh, while we haven't really used any, you know, advanced tools to measure that trust or that performance, we, we have some other sort of uh, OKRs and indicators. But but this is important. But how do you build trust? Again, in in a sort of uh, kind of frameworked way, you you make sure that the why and the purpose of your organization is aligned with your employee or your partner. And when I'm saying employee, I'm, 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 you know, given like a broad term because there are people who are working uh, through their companies and, 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 you know, contracts, but it's not the shape of the transaction. It's the, it's the outcome. It's the uh, journey, uh, joint journey. Uh, and it, whereas in the previous model, when everybody had to sit in the office uh, from nine to five, you had this kind of control uh, approach. Uh, and which which sort of uh, kills the the innovation, kills the outside of the box thinking, which is incredibly important in all industries at the moment. And this model is, uh, from my perspective, is fading away because it was built from, you know, factories and industrialization of the uh, of the end of 19th century, beginning of 20th century, when everybody was sitting at the desk. And the same model was accepted for education, and and from this and that uh, to that time, and doing what they're told to. Now we're we've we've like in Web three we're in in a digital revolution we're after COVID we can't do that anymore uh, unless we want to go backwards like we started this podcast and <laughs> you know in some areas we started to do that yeah okay so I, I'm curious so okay you, you mentioned uh, so the operative sort of phrase was the controlled approach so. You're right. And as, I, as I've mentioned before, I remember historically, again, going back to the working from home model, I had a manager, let everyone on my team work from home, and then I wasn't allowed to. For whatever reason, who knows, maybe one day I'll approach this person and ask why. I don't think I did anything wrong. I'm not sure. But again, maybe there was some, um, some ulterior motive or I'm not sure. The theory is that do you think that companies feel this lack of, they feel a bit out of control? Because when people are working from home, yes, of course, you know, they're, they've got remote access and all of that. So you, you can keep sort of tabs on them, so to speak, but you still don't really know if they're going for a 45 minute coffee break versus a five minute because you'd notice that, hey, Eugene's been gone for a long time or Carissa's been gone for a long time. Now you don't really have that visibility. So would you say that that, 
lack of control and out of control is starting to spiral perhaps for some companies because they don't know what all of their employees are doing? Well, I think, uh, first of all, definitely uh, my personal advice, approach that person and, and, and have that conversation definitely will give you a lot of, a lot of interesting insights. But uh, I mean, the person that didn't allow you to work from home back then. Uh, but in terms of control, I, I think it, it definitely there are, okay, let's, let's be practical here. There are areas where you need to have that responsible kind of uh, transparency. I wouldn't call it the control. And you need to have the means and ways uh, to make sure that someone is doing the job and it's, and it's sort of important, like if you take government or, you know, sensitive areas of the society, you can't just uh, allow someone to have coffee in whatever point of day uh, they, they, they may like. But uh, we need to shift the mindset in a way that even if in the areas where we require more of the visibility and, and control, um, if we push too hard, we're not going to have any control. If you're trying to be con a control freak and uh, over control things, uh, you, you're going to have nothing, not, no control at all. So you need to really uh, harmonize and balance that. And in industries like... You know, in, in places like startups and technology companies, which, which are thinking on new deliverables, new solutions, uh, uh, you should look from the perspective of the outcomes, not from the perspective of the uh, process at itself. So, the, 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 uh, you know, you need to establish the environment when people are motivated to do things. So, if you can't motivate another person without creating an environment in which that person Will motivate them, you know, themselves. Uh, and, and so I think for most of the companies, and I'm saying like 80%, I, I, except for probably very sensitive government areas like uh, and defense and all of that, where you need some sort of this military command approach. Uh, uh, otherwise, uh, my my personal view on that: the less control you have, the more your why is uh, communicated the more it's aligned and you can measure that whether your people are engaged or not and find out uh, if, if they're not and why. But the, the more you have that alignment, you don't need to control anyone. You, 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 uh, they'll be inspired and motivated uh, to, to deliver and to uh, fulfill the company's uh, perspective and purpose. I was at the, this conference uh, still yesterday and there was a, a uh, lady who who is specialized in in you know having placing people in the right domains of the organization, making sure they're in their uh, best position to be creative, to be productive, and 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 uh, she said, "I hate this world control. I would rather say uh, we we should not control people. We should inspire people." And I love that. It, it actually makes total sense to me. And she's very practical. She comes over to this, those tech companies and measures uh, where their people are uh, sort of uh, sitting and what they're doing. And from there, she, she's given an advice on how to sort of uh, harmonize that. Yeah. So, okay. One thing I'd really like to hear your thoughts on is you got a lot of people out there that are like, yeah, I'm going to inspire my employees. I'm not going to have the control. I'm going to be like the cool boss. So. Is it genuine though? Because I mean, look, anyone can say what they want. They can have the right intention, but there's still, you can sort of tell with certain people that there's that ulterior motive there. Like perhaps every hour that they're messaging messaging you on Microsoft LinkedIn, they're like, how's the thing going? So it's like they're saying one thing, but they're doing another thing. So 
there is still that level of disingenuousness. Can you sort of explain a little bit more? Are, are you seeing this? Again, am I really sort of off the mark here? But, I mean, I've, I've come across this myself, like all these people sort of just saving face a little bit because that's what they're told to do, but it's just not genuine. Uh, I think in this particular case, uh, at least what comes into my mind, is that uh, ideally in the organization larger than 15, 12 people, you, 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 uh, it's better to have not the sole and one decision maker. Because if you have one, if you have one decision maker who has, may have a bad day or bad mood, or uh, all of us, we have some strengths and weaknesses as human beings and uh, uh, you know uh, traits and features that that are uh, good and some of the, that are still still uh, you know would probably require improvement so uh, you you want to make sure that uh, important decisions on interaction with employees on interaction with partners and customers are not made by just one person uh, of course it might be a family business but it's up to you if you want to go with, with that it's like you know building it's like dating and marriage stuff which is always personal but business-wise, um, my professional take on that, uh, if there is still one decision-making in the organization larger than even 10 people, that's not healthy. At some point of time, it will start to impact not even like the people, but if you look at the business life cycles of any company, uh, you know, you have like startup or development, pre-startup, startup, emergence, growth, expansion, maturity, decline. At every phase of this of this business life cycles, you need a certain level of governance, uh, governance and decision making architecture to make sure that this one person doesn't text uh, someone like twenty eight thousand times a day and <laughs> kills this you know uh, employer employee relationship, or like texting you know after having a drink at a Friday night and having a great idea, texting someone at one a.m. Friday night and it might be it might be a good intention but you know very bad execution <laughs> oh my gosh that is frustrating 100 percent. And, and this is real stuff this happened I mean I speak to people they're telling they're expressing me these managers or what whoever it is that this this still does happen that's why I was curious to get your thoughts on it now would you say historically people make decisions though based on biases we've sort of touched on a little bit today but is this still the case today? Absolutely, uh, Carissa. Myself and yourself probably are making some decisions based on biases. Uh, it's just, uh, uh, you know, we want to improve. Like, if we're aware about that, we want to improve. But we're all, we'll, like, by design, human is, bias, is a biased being. We have, like, this, uh, like three, three or four segments of our uh, brain from reptilian to the kind of cognitive advanced part of it. So there, there, uh, it, it will definitely impact the decision-making. And back to my previous point, this is why we need uh, several angles to this decision-making process. And, and, you know, you have examples where two years ago, or maybe a little bit less, uh, you know, top management and strategy consulting of the world, McKinsey and company, uh, on their board, couldn't make a decision on who was going to be the next uh, kind of head of McKinsey Global they even applied AI on top of their standard decision-making process uh, governed by all of the documents you can imagine there. Uh, and they couldn't make it. It, it. it was like a ridiculous anecdotal story. McKinsey can't make the decision on themselves. And they're like advising clients on decision-making, right? So um, it, it's wow, going to be that's there. Overkill. Yeah, it, it's going to be there and it's fine. And it's fine. And definitely... Uh, 
even in the examples when somebody texts you at night, for, like the founder of the company you're working for, uh, you know, the best way to uh, sort of uh, probably clear that out is to be human for both leader and employee and have this honest conversation and try to in, and you know intend to build the decision-making um, mechanism or, or framework in the company when when all these biases are addressed. And actually, it's like with the data analytics. If you know what is your bias, for instance, uh, I have a bias that I would not, I don't know, like I, can, I can't imagine which bias I have. You see, this is already a bias because it's really hard to self-analyze you. But having this sort of internal conversation or self-awareness exercise, okay, I may have this bias because, for instance, I may not potentially hire a Russian person at the moment, but if I talk to this person, I understand this is a... Uh, and I'm working with Russians in my company. I'm just joking, you know? So uh, it's just that kind of this type, this type of approach where you need to be self-aware as an organization, as a group of people, that there might be this or that bias. And... Uh, and, and you address that and you talk about it. You, you don't have any technology which will address this in an ideal matter, uh, you know, in ideal manner that, that is actionable at the moment. Of course, you have all of these sort of statistical AI models or machine learning models, but they will give you some extent of probability and, and the, the, the rest of the percentage of probability and the human behavior amplified, you're not going to you know, resolve it purely by, by technology, maybe in, I don't know, 100 years, but not now. So you really need to keep that communication uh, going and, and be aware about your biases and the biases of, of your colleagues, your partners and, and employees in place uh, and keep, keep communication going. Okay, so from your perspective, what are some of the stri- strongest biases that you, you see? Now, I'm not talking about you specifically, but like just generally from like companies that you've noticed perhaps. Is there any sort of ones that stand out quite substantially? Well, there are a lot of them because I'm, I'm in basically business development and sales. I, I, have, I have rate of rejection of uh, about whatever I'm suggesting and offering like around 80, 90%, which is a normal thing, right? So, for instance, I would have a bias that okay, this sales guy is calling to sell to sell to sell me his company. I'm not gonna really listen. I'm gonna show that I'm listening, but I'm not actually involved. Or you may have uh, social biases uh, around who comes from where, what is the professional background, what is uh, how does the person look like, how does the person sound like. Uh, multiple biases or in decision making in the organization uh, somebody may come up come up with a great idea but for instance for for technology solution but this this person has hasn't got any sort of technology background and uh, this will not be taken into account or or um, otherwise the technology guy offers a creative solution for sales uh, and, but then since th- this was the first time in the year that this guy has started talking because he was in the cold, <laughs> nobody would listen, right? So uh, it, uh, there, are, there is like a lot of literature on types of biases. Uh, I'm not a behavioral scientist, definitely. It's just my practical observations. Uh, I think I think you had a couple of great guests uh, on, on that topic. Uh, and one of the professors from Sydney, uh, they're doing a great job in that space. And I think... This, this, this is the domain that should be definitely embedded in business decision making. And the tools I mentioned about measuring engagement of employees, they're also, they, they are like software tools, but they already embed that, that sort of wisdom 
in them. Uh, yeah, so many biases what, on whatever basis. It's just, uh, you know, we have this reptilian uh, part of the brain which uh, makes sure we're secure and safe physically. And I think most of the biases come, come from that side because uh, it's not just because we're arrogant, it's because we, uh, our sort of brain tries to secure us from potential threats. And since we're not at least all of us are in war at the moment. We we like create those problems sometimes in the places where they don't exist in the business landscape. I guess it's just human nature, right? Like you know, and people say don't judge people. Like we naturally judge people. Like it, it just happens. Like it's a subconscious thing rather than it is conscious. And then maybe it is conscious after a while. Like who knows, right? But would you say in Australia there are stronger biases here than perhaps other parts of the world? And why is that? Well. To be honest, uh, from from now I've traveled around Europe. I've been in the U.S. Uh, and you know mostly Europe and Asia and Australia is my home now. But from my perspective as a you know Ukrainian guy, I would say that uh, it's from my experience again, it's the least biased place I've ever been to. Uh, it, it, it's it's been really, of course there are challenges and and, and different people, but it's been really welcoming to me and and. Uh, I, I wouldn't call it, even though I talk to people who uh, who were born here or who are sort of, uh, uh, you know, who've been for a lo- longer time than I've been here. And I, I hear different thoughts that there are you know, certain types of social biases or business biases. But my experience hasn't been really uh, bad. I would rather say it, it's great. Uh, you know, I, I lived and studied in Switzerland. I moved. My projects were in Netherlands, Belgium. Uh, even Russia and and other places, and I've seen, at least in European part of the planet, I've seen much more multi-layered biased approach to to people and and, and decisions. So I wouldn't I would call Australia as a new world in, in, in by all means. Of course, there are biases because there are 25 million people on board here. Of course, there are biases, but otherwise it's it's really positive, and uh, I wouldn't call it a challenging place. Uh, if you're open-minded, you can build your life here, and and you know, and so and discuss those biases with people around you. Yeah, that's interesting. I um, no, I like that. I've never really, never really spoken about this sort of topic on the show, so I really appreciate it, and I really appreciate uh, you, Eugene, and and your your time today. So, uh, thanks, uh, thanks for taking the time out to uh, come on the show. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Carissa. I, I hope we didn't go too far and philosophical, but definitely. In all technology space, uh, you know, uh, we're seeing a lot of those those sort of challenges and, and matters. And uh, if we address them, I think our technologies and our solutions will be just better because we've advanced them so far that uh, it's time for humans to catch up. Thanks for tuning in. We hope that you found today's episode useful and you took away a few key points. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get our latest episodes. If you'd like to find out how KBI can help grow your cyber business, then please head over to kbi.digital. This podcast was brought to you by KBI.media, the voice of cyber.